You know the Old Testament story of Job and all that he suffered. Job had lost his children. He had lost his property. He had even lost his health. And in the midst of it all, Job begins to to wonder if it would have been better had he never been born. Begins to go where, where maybe you've allowed your mind to go at times and wonder, why am I here? Why in the midst of all this? And in fact, he was simply losing his will to live. Job, at one point, was ready for God to take him. Job chapter 14, verse 13, he said to God, essentially, go ahead and bury me in death. Just just cover me over and hide me, but but remember me, he says in that verse. Appoint a time when you will remember me. And then Job asked this question in Job 14, 14, if a man dies, shall he live again? That question has been pondered throughout all time. Human beings have debated it and wondered about it. What goes on beyond the grave? What hope is there? Since ancient times, there have been arguments about that. The Greek philosopher Epicurus, 300 years before the coming of Jesus Christ, said this, death is nothing to us. When we exist, death is not, and when death exists, we are not. All sensation and consciousness ends with death, and therefore in death there is neither pleasure nor pain. Epicurus was expressing not an unusual view, but what was the common view in the Gentile world of that time. He went on to say that anyone who feared death simply did so because they were mistaken in their belief that there was some sort of sensation, some experience or consciousness after death. There were actually some Jewish priests who also denied the resurrection, who denied that there is an afterlife, and they're a group called the Sadducees. We come into the New Testament, we find these two groups of Jewish priests who are largely the the ruling class of the day. They make up what is called the Sanhedrin, sort of the the high court that that registers verdicts in terms of um, Jewish religion, Jewish law. They were formed, Sadducees and Pharisees, largely during that period between the Old Testament and New Testament, about 200 years before the time of Jesus Christ. And the formations largely over, no surprise here, political reasons. Around 200 BC, there's still a debate over what to do with the exploding Roman Empire. How, how do we respond to Rome and its creeping in? And, and on one side were those who said, we need to compromise. We, we need to be willing to secularize. We need to make peace. We need to do all that we can to satisfy Rome. That was the It was the Sadducees. That was their willingness was to try to do whatever it took, adopting the Greek language, adopting Greek culture, secularizing whatever it took. On the other side were the the priests who stood their ground and said, no, we will stand on God's law and there is no room for compromise with Rome. And those were the Pharisees. And together they formed this, this Jewish high court. When Rome finally takes authority, the Sanhedrin has very little authority except in matters of Jewish law, religious sort of matters, even the the power of execution, which obviously the Old Testament law speaks to executing people for committing certain crimes, for killing others. Even that was taken away. The Romans said, well, we'll decide that. That's why the the Sanhedrin ultimately has to go to the Romans when they want to crucify Jesus. They, They can't impose the death penalty themselves. But there were differences between the Pharisees and Sadducees, not only over how to deal with Rome, 
but also matters of doctrine. The Pharisees upheld most of what we would regard as the Old Testament. They referred to it as the law and the prophets, and they, they looked to it. What they, what they did wrong and what we often see in the Gospels and Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees is they, they built so much around the Old Testament. They took um, historic interpretations and, and added laws and, and added rules to try to sort of hedge in the Old Testament law, and, and they made just this legalistic burden on people with man-made rules. Sadducees swung the pendulum the other way, a, a much more liberal, compromising sort of approach to interpreting Scripture, accepting only largely Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books, and even then with some willingness to, to flex a little bit, far more willing to adapt Jewish law to modern practices, even if that meant compromise. One of the places where the division ran deepest between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was this question of the afterlife. This belief in what happens to the soul that dies. When the soul departs from the body, does it depart from the body or is it simply death in the end? Sadducees rejected any teaching about the afterlife. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not see it in Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so they, they were like most of the rest of the world. Said, no, you enjoy life while you can. This is all there is. The Pharisees, on the other hand, held firmly to the belief that when a person dies, the soul leaves the body and immediately stands before the Creator God accountable for their life, having to speak before Him and face His judgment. Of course, the resurrection matters this morning to us on Easter. Turn to Acts chapter 23, if you would. The resurrection also figures in here as we've been studying the book of Acts. It comes up prominently in Paul's encounter in Jerusalem. Last week, you were in chapter 22, Paul being held in custody in Jerusalem. The, the Romans have him in sort of a protective custody, trying to preserve his life from Jews who are seeking to kill him, but they are holding him nonetheless. He's under arrest. As Stuart preached to you last week, Paul took that opportunity with, with sort of the protection, if you will, of the Roman guard to tell the story again of how Jesus had saved him to use that as an opportunity to give his testimony and to proclaim the, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul described how, how he too once hated Jesus and hated followers of Jesus. And then he saw Jesus alive. The Savior himself came to Paul, and Paul is gloriously saved, and his life is transformed. We know, as you saw last week, Paul's testimony about Jesus really didn't sway many in that Jewish audience. In fact, they are further enraged. They are shouting and screaming, and they want nothing less than the destruction of Paul, the shutting of his mouth. The Roman military commander who's in charge of holding Paul is utterly confused at what's happening here. There's some kind of dispute that he just doesn't fathom. He's got a riot on his hands and no clue as to why the Jews who typically hated the Romans, he and his other guards now hated one of their own. And since Paul was a Roman citizen, the commander didn't have too many options. He might have, with someone who was not a citizen, just taken and beaten him and whipped him, just something to sort of placate the, the crowd, much as Pilate tried to do with Jesus, but he couldn't do that. And so he sets up a meeting. He decides to call the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees says, I, I want to sit you all down and I'm going to bring Jesus in, uh, excuse me, I'm going to bring Paul in under guard 
and, and I want to hear this. I want to hear the story. I want to understand what's going on here. You, you make your case, your accusations, and let him make his defense. It's not a trial. Claudius Lysias explains he's the, the, the commander at this point, and he explains. In fact, if you look toward the end of chapter 23, verse 25, this is, this is him after the hearing writing about what transpired. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man, he's talking about Paul, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing, deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. This is the Roman military commander who's based in Jerusalem, writing to the governor of the region saying, you need to handle this. I have got a circus on my hands here, and, and I don't know what to do with it. They are determined to kill this guy. He has done nothing worthy of being put to death. In fact, I, I think it's some dispute over their religious law, and I can't settle it. And so maybe you can. I'm sending him to you. This is after the fact. Lysia says, I'll just send him up to the governor and let him make his case and the Sanhedrin make their case there. All right, with that in mind, sort of the postlude to this, go back to the beginning of Acts chapter 23, and Luke narrates this abbreviated version of what went on in that meeting with the Sanhedrins. The Romans are standing by trying to listen and figure this out. Chapter 23, verse 1. In looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Pause there. Paul is brought in, and he already knows the accusation because he's heard it from the crowd when he is first taken. And we saw it back in Acts chapter 21, verse 28, when, when the, the Jews who had gathered and were surrounding Paul said, men of Israel, this is the man, Paul is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, that is against the Jewish people, and the law, and this place, that is the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So Paul knows already why he's there. They believe that he is speaking out against Judaism, against the Jewish law, and that he's defiling the temple. And so his very first statement is, listen, I have lived my life before God and my conscience is clear. I, I do not, as I have examined my own heart, I, I know that I am not guilty of what you are accusing me of, is, is what he's saying. My conscience is clear. In response, the Jewish high priest orders that Paul be punched in the mouth. Paul's answer is to call him a godless hypocrite. That's the idea of the whitewashed wall. You, you've, you've covered the surface, but there's nothing behind it. You are empty. You are godless. And so he is condemning the high priest back. Now, 
There's all sorts of discussion as to what's happening here. It's possible that Paul, poor eyesight, not having encountered this high priest before, that maybe he doesn't recognize the high priest, or maybe he actually is condemning the high priest and being maybe perhaps a little sarcastic in the process and, and acknowledging the fact that you have no real priestly role over these people because you do not acknowledge the Messiah that God sent. Either way, what's clear is there's a there's always a, a basic civility here of order that God has established and still respect for authority. And Paul repents in verse 5 and acknowledges that, that his tone at least was out of order. And so this is not to make an excuse for Paul, but again, put yourself in his place. Having been dragged in, falsely accused, now just sort of randomly punched in the mouth. Most of us might not respond with kind, gentle words in those moments. Jesus certainly does when he is beaten, but, but you and I can probably understand Paul's immediate reaction here, but he does seem to repent of it to some measure. But here's the heart of the matter, verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, Claudius Lysias, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. There's how it ends in Jerusalem for Paul. This is the, the moment it, we as human beings sometimes build moments up, and, and, and no doubt for Paul, this was the moment. This was the opportunity to stand before the Jewish priesthood, to stand before the high priest, and to be able to speak to them, and it ends in just a riot again, just chaos and shouting and arguing. Now, we read what Paul did here. He sort of reads the room, Pharisees and Sadducees, and it's really possible to look at this and go, Paul being sort of the skillful guy that he was, read the room and found a way to, to sort of divide the room up, to, to, to sort of get some on his side and, and get them arguing amongst themselves instead of focusing on him. And so he sort, of, he sort of pulls the pin and throws this resurrection hand grenade in the midst of this room and says, here, deal with it, guys. Go ahead and start fighting about that again because I know you don't agree about that. Sort of a divide and conquer philosophy. And, and sure enough, it happened. That may well have been in Paul's mind, that when he said this, that, that this would result. But I, I want to submit to you this morning that that was most certainly not his chief reason for saying what he said. And I can say that because I, I know it because Paul now shifts the focus from essentially the charges against him as a breaker of the Jewish law and toward this one issue. I am on trial because of hope and resurrection of the dead. 
That's what he literally said. It's because of hope and resurrection of the dead, those two together. Paul was not simply using a diversionary tactic or a smokescreen to divide the room at this point. Because what we know is from this moment on, and frankly, from before this moment to then, but, but in particular, from here on, every time Paul gets in front of some authority, some representative of the Roman government, every time he is called to give a defense, he still comes back to this issue. He still comes back to the resurrection. He still continues to focus in and say, I am here because of this issue of the resurrection, both of Jesus Christ and of all men and women. I, I put these in the, the sermon notes, uh, but I just want to read some of these. If, if we were to go on this morning and just survey, chapter 24, he's standing before Governor Felix after Claudius has, has sent him on, and in front of Felix, Paul asserts, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so in front of Governor Felix, he's not, not pitching the, the standard defense of, I, I didn't go in the temple, I didn't break any Jewish laws, here's how I've kept the laws, getting into all the details of the case. In front of Governor Felix, he says, this is about belief in the resurrection of the dead and the judgment that follows. A couple of verses later, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Felix still doesn't know what to do with Paul. A couple days later, he, he has his wife alongside him. Felix does. She is a Jew. And he brings Paul in again. And he has another encounter with Paul that we'll, we'll read about when we get to chapter 24. But again, it says there, Luke records, Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Paul, again, in his opportunity with Felix, is there to say, this is not all there is, Felix. It's not as simple as what you do in the here and now. Live for today and tomorrow it's all done like Epicurus taught. There will be a judgment to come. Scripture tells us at that point, Felix is troubled. Not only does he not fully understand this whole dispute, now he's troubled in his own soul. He sends Paul back to prison, and that's where Paul remains for two years. Felix lives out the rest of his time as governor and is finally replaced. The, the, history tells us that the, the Romans were not ones to typically use imprisonment as a punishment. Imprisonment was used while you were held until your trial finally came around, until you finally got a hearing, and then you were either set free or you were whipped or you were killed. It was, it was all sort of done at that, and imprisonment for any kind of long term was, was not a punishment. It was just a waiting area, and that's what Paul went through. Festus becomes governor, and somewhere along the line, Festus says, let's, let's bring this case up again, and he has Paul brought up, and he has the Sanhedrin brought in. Chapter 25, it says, when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in Paul's case of such evils as I supposed. This is, by the way, this is Festus writing to the king over the region and saying, here's, here's what transpired. Accusers brought up no charge of evil that I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul 
assert it to be alive. So now two governors in a row over a period of several years have listened and have said, this guy keeps talking about people rising from the dead. That seems to be his fascination. This Jesus, whom we know was, was killed, we, we know the history about that, that was indisputable. He goes around saying Jesus is alive. And not only does he say that, but he says so too, we will be resurrected and we will face a judgment. And with that, Festus says, here, King Agrippa, he's yours. He's now, he's now made an appeal to Caesar, to the Roman emperor. So why don't you listen to him? And King Agrippa takes him. And in chapter 26, in front of the king, Paul says, And now I stand here on trial. Why, Paul? Because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Again, now, dealing with the, the king over that region. Paul says, don't you see? God raises the dead and there is judgment, which means the things we, we talk about here, these matters of religious dispute that you, you seem to not fully understand are important because there will be a judgment, because you will, you will stand alive before the creator God when you have left this earth. Again, it's the resurrection that he brings up. And Paul was finally finishing his testimony to the king. Again, in chapter 26, he said, So I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Every situation Paul gets put in, when you and I might be tempted to say, you yourself know I've done nothing wrong. Two governors and now a king all acknowledge that I have done nothing to break your law. So set me free. Here, here's, in fact, here's my defense. Here's what I did. Here's what transpired. None of it will condemn me. Instead of focusing on that, every opportunity Paul gets, he says, King, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jesus, the one that you all crucified, he is alive, and you will be resurrected, and you will stand before him, and he will be your judge. Jesus rose from the dead. That is the heart of his message. When he is finally taken to Rome in chains, it says that he gets there and he calls the local Jewish leaders to testify before them. And in the end of Acts, in Acts 28, Paul says, it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So in Acts 23, when Paul says to the, the Sanhedrin, the reason I'm on trial in front of you is because of hope and, and, and resurrection of the dead. It is not some master scheme of manipulation that's trying to get him free. Because if he wanted to get free, he would have just stood on the facts of the case, which everyone agreed, absolved him. But instead, every time Paul says the theme of his preaching before the Sanhedrin, before he met with the Sanhedrin, after he met with the Sanhedrin, the theme every time comes back to Jesus Christ is risen. 
Remember Acts chapter 17 when he's in Athens and he's standing in front of those Gentile philosophers, these, these pagan philosophers, and they have that idol, that statue, that acknowledgement of some unknown God, and, and Paul preaches to them about who their unknown God is, and he finishes that message to those philosophers in Acts 17, 31 with this. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. These who fully denied the resurrection of the dead. And Paul says, I, I want to tell you that you will face judgment, and the reason I know that you will face judgment from God is because he has raised Jesus Christ, the judge you stand before, will be the one who was crucified and risen, and he will judge. Paul says there's one true God who raised a Savior from the dead, and this resurrected one will judge all of humanity. The response in Athens was to mock Paul. <laughs> Resurrection of the dead. Why does he preach these things? He sort of had us interested, and then he got to resurrection of the dead. I thought, what a fool. The reaction in Athens was far milder than the one Paul faced in Jerusalem. For years, we know, because we've been following Paul's journeys, in his mind has been this return to Jerusalem, this opportunity to bring this offering, to serve the, the Jewish believers there with this gift, but also to proclaim Christ, to go to Jerusalem, to the home of where so many of his brethren are, and, and to speak about Jesus Christ. And he has anticipated this moment for years. And when he finally does, the response is just violent, filled with malice and slander and mocking and insult. And this crowd simply wants to, as the commander fears, they want to tear Paul to pieces. They would just as soon kill him on the spot than listen to another word from him. And so... So we've already read that night Paul is taken back to the safety, if you will, of the Roman barracks. He is not a free man at this point. He's being held in custody. Paul's preaching was bold and clear. He gave the testimony that we, we saw last week. He stands before the Sanhedrin. He speaks of the resurrection and the hope. His preaching is, is spot on. And yet, you have to wonder if that night he is... He's not anything less than just crushed. That, that now, not only has that been rejected, once again, by the Jewish priesthood, the, the priesthood that, that destroyed the Messiah when he came, now has again been confronted with the Messiah as resurrected and again rejected him. And so Paul now has, has not only come and preached, it's over. This opportunity in Jerusalem is done. It's clear that the Romans are not going to let Paul speak another word publicly in Jerusalem. And frankly, at this point, Paul's got to be wondering, what's left? How am I ever going to get anywhere again? I'm going to sit here in their custody because nobody wants to resolve this. And that's when verse 11 of Acts 23 says, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For just as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. In the midst of Paul's dark night in Jerusalem, alone, not humanly speaking, much hope, 
No clear path forward. I'm done here in Jerusalem. They don't even know what to do with me. How am I ever going to get to Rome? Jesus appears. The risen Savior appears again to Paul with this word of encouragement and says, Paul, what you have spoken about me in Jerusalem, you must speak in Rome. You will, you will continue to speak this, and so take courage and keep speaking. Jesus, the risen Savior, stood by Paul. Jesus does not abandon his people. He has called us to proclaim the good news of the Savior, and he does not abandon. In fact, Jesus says to Paul, you must testify also in Rome. It would literally be years later and a long journey across the Mediterranean and a, and a shipwreck, all that would happen in between. And yet, God's promise did not fail. It did not come up short. Paul made it to Rome. And when he got to Rome, he spoke again about the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, I'm here because the hope of Israel has come. Jesus was with Paul in that prison and every step of the way, all the way to and through the moment when he would stand in the leading city of the Roman Empire and proclaim Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. That is the power of Jesus Christ to build his church. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to break through and to save hopeless, calloused rebels. That's the power that comes from a Savior who was victorious over death himself. That's the power of Jesus Christ, and nothing can stop the truth of Jesus Christ. The grave could not hold him. Death and sin could not defeat him. He defeated them, and that is his power at work in the life of the Apostle Paul. I'm sure many of you have heard the testimony of the late Chuck Colson, who back in the 70s was a special advisor to, to President Nixon and was one of just a handful of close advisors in the administration who was part of the whole attempt to cover up the Watergate scandal. And at some point during the cover-up process, even before he ever went to jail, at some point during that process, Colson was saved. God gloriously rescued him. And, and so Colson later confessed his guilt and was Served his time and served his time in prison after that. But Colson would famously go on to explain that at the time of the cover-up in 1973, there were no more than a dozen insiders, guys who, who knew that there was a, a cover-up at stake, who were political zealots. I, I worked on the Hill. I, I understand what he's saying there. There's that, that sense of my party, my candidate, my whatever, and I, I am loyal to him to a fault. And, and, and Colson was saying, here's, here's less than 12 guys, political zealots, holding power connected to the highest office in the land, and all they need to do is keep a lie. If they keep a lie, they protect the president and they preserve their power. And Colson goes on to tell what history, of course, reminds us, that, that they could not keep that lie. That in no time at all, one after another, saw self-preservation as being the most important and realized that if, 
He was the first to run to the investigators and tell his story. He would probably get off the best. And so immediately the, the whole cover-up was broken. And, and Coulson says the whole thing actually, in terms of it staying together and holding together, lasted just under three weeks. <laughs> the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is fact. The historian Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, the, the Roman historian Tacitus, who was no friend of Christianity, both write in their annals that, that it was clearly reported and widely told that Jesus Christ had been killed in Jerusalem. There was, that was not a fact of history that was questioned. In fact, Josephus and Tacitus both acknowledge that the tomb of Jesus was empty and that his disciples went forward from that day and said, he is alive. Jesus has risen there's, there's no body in the tomb because Jesus is resurrected. And, and so even the secular historians acknowledge that that's what was told. They, they don't necessarily support the resurrection, but they, they say that historically it was known without a question that Jesus was crucified, buried, and that the tomb was then found empty. And his disciples, to a man, clung together and said, he has been risen. Of course, the skeptics... Tacitus among them said, what must have happened is that the disciples stole his body. Somehow they overpowered this, this Roman guard, this armed militia, and they overpowered him and they stole his body and they hid it. And then, man, for years, despite threats and beatings and torture and imprisonment and being ostracized, cut off from people after another, and then one after another being killed, despite all of that, the skeptics would say, somehow they kept their lie. Somehow they, they, they never thought about, I, this is dumb. <laughs> Why don't I save my life and reveal the lie? But instead they knew that what they had seen was true and that Jesus was alive and they, they would not say otherwise because it was true. And not only did they know it was true, but the skeptics would say, well, then somehow they spread it because we know from Scripture and again from history that hundreds more stepped forward and said they were eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ risen. And then, and then that group spreads out, and throughout the Roman Empire, they preach Christ risen. And thousands upon thousands from Jerusalem to Rome give their lives to Jesus Christ, and the Roman Empire is turned upside down. And Chuck Colson says, why didn't they crack? If the body was stolen, why didn't somebody just admit it? Because they had come face to face with the living God, and they could not deny what they had seen. Paul saw the resurrected Savior alive and over and over again at every opportunity God gave him. He took every chance he had to declare one unmistakable truth. There is a Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he was sent from God. He is the Son of God. He is God in flesh, and he lived a sinless life, and he was crucified and buried and rose from the dead, and I have seen him, and others have seen him, and he is alive, and you should repent and trust in him. You should turn to him because there is a resurrection of the dead. That's why Paul preached Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the first 
to be resurrected with a, a new resurrection body, to, to, to come back from death and not simply die again, but to come back from death to new eternal life. And Paul's saying, you, you will experience resurrection too. Your soul doesn't just stop. It will go on. And after it departs from your body, it will stand before the risen Jesus. And your eternal judgment will rest on what you did with him. Would you believe in him? Would you trust in him? That's what Paul preached when he summarized the gospel in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If you will bow to Jesus and believe that he is who he says he is and that he has done what he has said he has done, died and risen from the dead. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Woulda, coulda, shouldas. Paul coulda. Paul could have gone all kinds of routes in his, in his defense, all sorts of strategies. Could have brought all kinds of witnesses to say, he never defiled the temple. He never took, interview the Gentiles I was with. None of them saw the inside of the temple. There's no truth to any of this. Paul was never wrapped up in his own defense or getting absolution from the authorities. What mattered most was telling people again and again that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. There is a savior who died and who was buried and who defeated sin and death. And so he would speak of the hope of Israel. At that point in history, mid-first century, it was not a time of peace and prosperity in Jerusalem or in Judea. People were hurting. We've talked about Felix before, who was governor. He was erratic. He was cruel. There were repeated attempts to overthrow Rome that were crushed, and there were mass slaughters each time. There was suffering. It was a difficult time. And in the midst of it all, there was still this, within the, the Jewish people, this desperate hunger for something for hope, for a deliverer, for a savior. And that's why Paul says, I'm here on trial for hope and resurrection. I've come to preach to you that there is hope, but it rests in the resurrection. It is because Jesus Christ triumphed over the grave. Never mind overthrowing Rome or any other earthly foe or political power. There is a king, a savior, a Lord who has defeated the worst enemy of all. He has taken your guilt and your shame and that which troubles you in your soul. And he has suffered in your place on the cross and is now victorious over sin and death by defeating the grave. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, the risen Christ appeared to more than 500 believers. In fact, he goes on in that chapter to say, if Jesus has not been raised, if, 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 Jesus, is, if Jesus is dead and gone, and that's the end of the story, and there's no resurrection, and, and all we have then is just some sort of hope for this life and nothing beyond. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if that's, if that's the truth, we deserve to be the most pitied people on the face of the earth because we are fools. If there's no resurrection of Jesus, then we who have given our lives for this are really the most miserable, wretched people because we, we not only don't have hope, 
but, but we've, been, we've been proclaiming a lie, and the world deserves to call us fools. Listen, if Jesus is not risen, we don't even have just nice stories about a kind man who supposedly did miracles. If Jesus is not risen, then Jesus was a liar because Jesus Christ proclaimed himself to be the eternal son of God. Jesus Christ spoke of his own resurrection, that they would destroy this temple and that it would be rebuilt and he would rise in three days. If Jesus Christ is dead, he has left us in lies and despair. But we know the truth, right? My Redeemer lives. And what you do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important matter in your life. You cannot dismiss the resurrection of Jesus Christ as some insignificant piece of religious trivia. Either he rose from the grave and he is who he claimed to be, the Savior sent from heaven to rescue sinners in whom you and I must trust, or he was killed and did not rise and are gathering this morning and every Lord's Day, for that matter, is nothing more than empty ritual. You must confront that. Because over and over again in Acts and throughout the world for the next 2,000 years, believers have proclaimed, he has risen. He has risen. He was seen alive. And the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ make up the most important, most pivotal event in all of history. And this morning, if your hope is not fully in Jesus Christ, then I tell you, as surely as I'm standing here, he is alive. And he is coming again. He rose from the grave. And he, he plead with you in this moment to admit your sin, to run to him, and to experience the forgiveness and grace that only he can give. If you've already done that, then his resurrection, the hope that he gives, is the greatest news we could ever possess. And we should not be ashamed of it. We should dare to proclaim it at Every opportunity we get. If a man dies, shall he live again? Yes. In fact, Job himself, just a few chapters after asking that question, in the middle of his despair, said this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Job's knowledge, more than a thousand years before Christ, was, was rudimentary. But man, there was no lack of certainty in Job that he knew that the God who was with him and who he had trusted him and who was righteous above all, that that God was his redeemer. And that that God, he would see God. He would see his Redeemer. He knew that there was hope beyond the worst moment, season, horror of his life. That he would see his Redeemer. And he knew that with utter certainty. Is that your hope this morning? If it is, tell someone. Tell others. Tell people that you love that Jesus Christ is risen and there is hope. And if that is not your hope... And would you make today the day that you put your hope fully in Jesus Christ and that you know for certain that when you die, you will stand before and you will see your Redeemer. 
and you will praise him and worship him for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we echo the words of Job. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand, and I will see him, I will behold him. We here this morning who are trusting in Jesus Christ, join with the, the echoes of Paul and the other apostles and those who, whose lives were killed along the way because because to their dying breath, they would not stop preaching. He is alive. He has risen. You must believe in him. Father, we, we join now in song with our, our heavenly host as they worship before the throne of our risen Savior. We join in great worship and thanksgiving and praise. And what we do today, what we do each Sunday morning, what we do each day of the week is remind ourselves again and again that our lives are kept, they've been saved, and they are held by a Savior who is alive, who died in our place and rose again. Jesus, it is in your great name that we pray. Amen.